We are back, and we are in chapter 3 now. We're in chapter 3, where now we're going to see tested work. So what Paul is about to do here is he's going to use two metaphors to describe how God's wisdom should be used to build the church. Uh, The metaphors he's going to use are that of a field and a farmer, and of a, a house and a builder. He's going to use those two metaphors to describe what, yeah, what it looks like for, for ministers to, to build God's house. Okay? Um, let's, just, let's just jump in. Verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For where is jealousy and strife among you, uh, not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For, for when one says, oh, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Now, one of the things that's really important as we, we begin this is what does Paul mean when he's talking to the Corinthians here and he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as, but as people of the flesh. What's he, what's he mean there? Is he calling them non-Christians? Okay, so, so one option is that they're young Christians, okay? The way they're acting. Okay, so, so another option is that they're so worldly-minded that they're not actually able to listen well. So what he's not talking about here is some sort of acceptable category of a believer. So there's, there's a, some doctrine out there that talks about carnal Christians, um, as some kind of sinful condition that's just kind of how it is. Paul is not going to allow that to, 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 to stick around, right? So this is, it is a sinful condition of stagnant, stagnant immaturity, but it's not an acceptable one. This is actually a very dangerous place for them to be. And so what he's going to do is he's giving them here a humbling rebuke. You see, because the Corinthians, they, how did they view themselves? Yeah, they're, they're, they're wise, right? They're mature. They're, they're discerning. But he says, listen, y'all, i got to feed y'all a bottle. I can't, I can't feed you a ribeye. I want to I serve y'all some steak. Let's eat, right? But I can't. i got to mix up some formula for y'all. And the reason is because they're so worldly-minded in, in their thinking. And the evidence of their immaturity is your divisions, your factions, your jealous fighting over personalities. He says you're acting like a bunch of pagans. When you're just strutting around wearing the jerseys of your, your favorite teachers and belittling others, you're misunderstanding who ministers really are. They are, he says, servants. This is who they are. They're servants. Now, what he does here is he uses... Uh, these two metaphors, right? So the first is the metaphor of a field. Look at verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He says the church here is, is like a field, and ministers are like farmers. So Paul planted, and that's what he did. He planted the church, right? And then Apollos, who was a, a well-known teacher of the day, he came and evidently he taught them. So he watered the seed, right? And these, these both Paul and Apollos, they are both what? They're servants, through whom God worked His saving power. It's not like these guys were a bunch of magicians who came in and were like, oh, they're amazing. No, no, no. They are just vessels 
through whom God worked to change this church. See, this is why there should be absolutely no competition in the kingdom of God. Competition between churches is worldliness. It's worldliness. We are, we are co-laborers with God and with other ministers. We're working together for the same purpose. It should all be about Jesus. Now, there are times we need to really disagree about some things and have some conversations. And that's good and that's right. But the way we do it and the goal for which we do it is what matters even more. Right? So we look to God for, for growth and for the reward. This is the illustration that he may have even been um, drawing upon Jesus' teaching in Mark 4. Do you remember the farmer who goes out and he sows seed? And then what's he do? He goes to bed and he wakes up and poof, there's a harvest. He didn't even know how it happened. It just sprung up, it says. It's the same kind of picture that Paul is using here. We're just throwing seed. We're watering seed. And this is what the apostles were doing. This is what the teachers were doing. And this is what we do as as brothers and sisters in Christ who go out wherever God places us and we sow the seed of God's word and then we water. Listen, you don't know where you are in that process and it really doesn't matter because God is the one who's given the growth. I think I've shared shared this before. I don't know if you've heard it, but like, so I... I had the gospel shared with me some 17 times before I became a Christian. 17. I did not want to hear about your Jesus. I did not care. But there were people who kept coming and sowing seeds and watering seeds and sowing seeds and watering seeds. And eventually God made it grow. All those people were co-laborers in the kingdom of, of God. So this is how we should see ourselves. So that's the metaphor of the field. Now he uses the metaphor of a building. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest or made seen For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward from the Lord. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So so Paul had planted the church upon the foundation of Christ crucified. That's their power, that's their wisdom, that's their glory. Then everybody else who followed him are builders who come and build on the foundation, which is, is Christ. So if a church starts and the foundation isn't Jesus, it's not a church. It's just a bunch of people getting together talking about religious stuff. But the Corinthian, it, Corinthian church was a church because it's founded on Christ. And all these other people who are coming in and building are working on, uh, working on this building, right? They're, they're, and those who are pouring into the church, who are laboring... They must be very careful how they build and what materials they use in the construction. Now, to help clarify what he's given here, I don't know if you caught it, but there's, there's three types of building going on that have three outcomes. Did, did you catch them there? There's some who build well. There's some who build poorly. And then there's some who destroy the church. Those are the three types of builders that are going on um, in the world today and there in, even in Corinth. Okay? The first one are those who build well. Chapter 3, verse 12, he mentions three good sorts of building materials. What are they? Gold, silver, precious stones. He likens those to the right sorts of things to build the church with. 
It's interesting when you get to the book of Revelation and you see the temple of God where the people dwell forevermore, that's what it's built with. Now, what he's talking about here is the sort of material that is faithful, that is Christ-exalting. And that it's also tied to the way that it's lived out. It's not just the presentation of it, but it's also the the living out of it. Enduring persecution and and suffering. Pursuing purity of heart. All of this. He says that sort of work survives and is rewarded. God sees that. God upholds that. And on the last day, when there is the judgment for the believer, the work will remain and there will be reward given. Then there's the second sort of, of building. So, And just to be clear here, the three sorts of, of people, two are believers, one's not. The first two are believers. Okay, So the one who builds well with gold, silver, precious stones, he's a believer and he's rewarded. He, she is a believer and rewarded. The second person builds poorly. Now, there again in 312, what are the building materials that this person uses? Wood, hay, and straw. If you build a house with wood, hay, and straw, how's it going to go? Not so good. Yeah, you blow your house down. Exactly, right? Uh, <laughs> the three little pigs know that one, right? So um, same, same kind of idea here, right? This is, so what, what, what kind of teaching is this? Well, it's flawed teaching. It's distorted teaching. It's watered-down teaching. It's compassionless teaching and living. Well, on that last day, when the Lord evaluates that work, regardless of how many books it sold, it will be burned up. Though, it says here, do you notice what happens to the person? Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, meaning loss of reward, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Meaning this person is indeed saved, but all that they labored for in the end is consumed in fire. It's the judgment of the believer. But then there's a third sort of person here. There in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is, this is of the false teacher. This is those who build with a, a prosperity gospel that sows people's hearts to the world rather than to Christ. Or a moralistic gospel, the Santa Claus gospel of be good for goodness sake because you do the right thing because the right thing is the right thing to do. That there's no power in that. It doesn't glorify Christ. Or, or the political gospel, that, it, that Jesus' name is used to rally uh, around campaigns for worldly power. Now, I understand there can be different versions of all of this and the Lord will sort it all out in the end. But what we need to be very careful of is that he says that there are, there are ways to build the church that actually destroy the church and don't build people into Christ. And that is characteristic of a false teacher. And God will destroy that person in judgment. Now, just a couple things and we'll take some questions. But... Um, Notice here when he says that uh, he destroys the church, if anyone destroys God's temple, which is the church, God will destroy him. To destroy the church doesn't mean in an ultimate sense. Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He will build his church no matter how bad messed up everybody around is trying to to do their thing. Um, But that being said, there are denominations that have been destroyed because they have embraced worldly wisdom. So, for instance, not every church in the PCUSA is this way, but very, very many churches in the PCUSA will not hold to Christ as being the only way. Will not hold to till the, till the PC is the Presbyterian Church USA. That's not the same as the Presbyterian Church, so the PCA so Delray Baptist Church, we rent to a PCA church, which is a Presbyterian church. They love Jesus, preach the gospel. We love them. We think they're wrong on baptism, but that's okay. Um, the Presbyterian Church USA, not all of them again. I actually know some, some ministers who are in that group who are trying to hold down the fort and, and try and be faithful for Christ and influence from the inside. But very many have cast aside the exclusivity of Christ 
and many other things. Even, even right now, you see the Methodist church very likely to split um, over, yeah, interpretations of Scripture uh, in regards to sexuality. And those splits never end well. Um, and, and listen, I just would say that there are times to split. So all this calls for division is not, again, unity at, at all costs. There, there's times to, 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 to break. That being said, what he's, what he's laying out here is that God is building His church and God is, and I just want to say one other thing about this, is that no denomination, no group is immune to this ever happening to them. We're always one generation away from this happening to whatever group you're in. I know in this, in this room we have people from lots of different backgrounds and that's, that's, that's great. I just, whatever your, your tribe is, just remember that you're never safe in the sense that we must always be on guard, ensuring that we are humbly coming to God's Word. Lord, help us. But God is indeed building His church, and He's cultivating His harvest. And God employs and He equips ministers uh, and His servants, right? And God will reward and God will judge them. So this is, I think, primarily in view here, He has pastor ministers, but this is also true for all believers in the way that we're discipling one another. What are we building people into? Are we living out the things that, that God calls us to? Well, chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. And if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Meaning, it's okay to be on the wrong side of history if you're on the right side of eternity. That's the charge continually. The you Christians are on the wrong side of history. Just need to be very, very careful. As long as you're on the right side of eternity, that's what's most important. Verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is folly to God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their, in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Verse 21, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So he concludes here with a warning to the church to not be self-deceived, to not be enamored with worldly wisdom and instruction, to beware and to be warned that clinging to worldly wisdom is actually setting yourself in opposition to God. He says, don't do it. And then he counters it with saying, look what you do have. Look how much better the treasure that you have from God is. He says, you have everything in Christ. All the teachers, you don't need to divide over them. They're all yours. God gives them to you as a gift. Life itself is from God. Death, he's going to raise you out of it. The world, you're going to inherit a new heaven and a new earth. All of eternity, he says, it's all yours. Why would you trade all of that for some worldly applause and some followers on social media and to sell some stupid books that are all going to burn? He's like, That's, that is not what to chase after. Worldly wisdom will get you that. Rather, receive what the Father has given you. Christ, all things. He says, it's all yours. Enjoy it. He's intending to warm our hearts to see the preciousness of what we have in Christ and how it's so much better than the world could ever offer. Um, yeah, just for, for running the risk of being very specific, um, I, I, I think that in our day, the, yeah, the whole LBGTQ movement and how the church is responding to it is, is it's vital for us to think. What does God's Word say? And how are we going to represent Christ and His Word in, in this day? Because this, this is the pressure that is pushing on the church. It's not the only thing, but it, in, our, in our area, this is, this is what's coming. And and, and sadly, I think there are many believers who are overcorrecting 
the way that the church has for a long time wrongly related to people who struggle with same-sex attraction and people who, who come out of, of, of that particular lifestyle. There's lots of things the church has been off on, but I think we've done a particularly poor job historically in loving people who, who, who are in that community. And I think a lot of Christians feel that, and they feel shame and guilt over that, and many are overcorrecting. And what is actually happening is now, in the name of love and inclusion and affirmation, are trying to show, we're not like that, we're not like that. But you've got to remember that moving out of one ditch into another ditch is not helpful. Overcorrection is, is dangerous. Well, we, we do need to repent of some things as a church in regards to the way that we, we minister to whatever group it may be. Because everybody's sinners. Everybody needs the grace of God. And as Paul even began his letter, we're sinners. So who are we to ever start going after people in a way that's condescending? But also, who are we to ever edit God's word on whatever the topic may be? And this is, this is a call in our day to be, to be humble and say, okay, if I never listened to the news, if I never listened to any, any sort of worldly influence, and I just read the scriptures, what does God say? And we live by that, which takes much prayer and much humility. And I think developing relationships with people who are very different than you to be able to understand how the gospel applies to one another. But that, yeah, I mean, I knew somebody was going to ask me, so I'll just go ahead and tell you. Um, I think that's... That's an example, I think, of way that worldly wisdom has crept into the church in our day and I, th- I think has led some astray. And I just want to say this very clearly. If, if you're here and you're struggling with same-sex attraction or you come from, from a gay lifestyle, I just, I just want you to know everybody's sexually broken. All of us, everybody in this room, there's nobody who understands things exactly right. And that the grace of God is for all people. And our biggest issue is not our sexuality. Our biggest issue is that God made us in his image to know him and love him and enjoy him. And that regardless of how we've done it, we've all turned away from him. And the most fundamental thing is that we need to be right with God through faith in Christ. And that's where we need to begin the conversation. And there's nobody in here who's awesome and has it all together. So regardless of what your struggle is, the the church of, of Christ is intended to be a place of both truth and love. And I want to say, though, that it's not loving of someone to affirm a sin that God condemns. That's not love for someone to affirm something. Um, and we all have things that we love in our sin. So if you want to talk about that anymore, we'd be happy to do that. My wife and I would love to have you over for, for dinner and, and, and happy to hear your story and, and hear what's going on. We'd love to talk with you about it. Now, I'm going to pause there and take a couple questions before we get into chapter 4 and, 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 and hear Paul's description of, of what trustworthy workers looks like. But what he's highlighting here again in chapter 3 is workers and how they should work with a view of the day of judgment coming um, and, and what God is going to exalt as, as being faithful. Okay? What questions would you have? Purgatory? Oh, suicide. Yeah. Verse 16 and 17. Um, what would you say to someone who yeah, to, to says that this is about suicide? Um, I would just say it's, I would say, first of all, it's, it's, I would just say it's not, right? Um, that he's talking here about building the church. He is going to mention here and in chapter 6 that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and we should, should care for it, right? Um, but he's, he's not talking about that in particular. Suicide is a sin. It's self-murder. And, um, but believers can do it. Believers can, can be given over to, to despair. And it, a believer can, can commit suicide in the same way that a believer can fall into any other sin. Um, and it's not the unforgivable sin. So if, if you're in Christ, you're, you're justified, you're rooted, you're forgiven, you're His. Um, but it's a, it is a serious sin. It's a very serious sin and one that people ought, ought never give into. And I just want to say, just since it came up, 
I mean, in a room this big, I'm sure some of you are despairing at different times. And I just want to let you know that there is hope in Christ and that he will give you grace for whatever it is that you might ever be facing. And we would love to walk with you through this. But this is not the unforgivable sin. I know there's some groups that teach that, and that's, just, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about building the church and false teachers who are destroying it through false teaching. So, that's good. Yeah. We hope you would help me understand, because when you started this uh, chapter, but our brothers cannot address you as spiritual people, but mm-hmm. as people of the, of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Mm-hmm. In my translation, just the chapter before, it seems like they were referring, like Paul was referring to people as not having the spiritual capacity, mm-hmm. right? Yep. In this interpretation, it calls them unbelievers. Good. Can you clarify? Great. Yeah, great, great question, Greg. So in chapter 2, he's talking about the natural man who's unable to understand the things of God. And then in chapter 3, he's coming and he's talking to the Corinthian church. And he uses language that sounds a lot like it. So that's a great observation. And what Paul is doing is he's, he's already addressed them, though. So in this one, he's been really clear. He's comparing the people of God with the people of the world. Now he's, he's talking to the Corinthians, who we already know from chapter 1. He says you are believers. He says the problem is, though, that you've been so infected by this worldly thinking, your heart and your mind and your ears are dull to the things of God. So it's a, it's a rebuke that's intended to wake them up that, hey, listen, you're acting like a bunch of unbelievers. So it's, it's intended to, to startle them because of the seriousness of it. That's a great observation, though. It's really good. So what is, how do you sift out which, which teachings fall into category one, two, and three? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think in one sense, we don't know exactly where everything falls in. So I, it's hard to take, oh, here, here's a book from the Christian bookstore, and be like, I think that's category two. And this one's definitely category one and definitely three, right? So it, that, that is difficult to, to, to do. I think what's, what's easier is give me a particular teaching, and let's evaluate it. So what this calls for is for all believers to develop something called discernment, which in an age of reaction, so this is one thing that social media has trained us to not do, is to think critically. We just react. Be like, oh, dumb, I'm going to send a meme. Woo-hoo, who's funny? Like, like that's, that's the way we think now, and it's just kind of made us stupid. Rather than stopping and thinking and meditating and evaluating things with wisdom and through prayer and through counsel, right? So, yeah, I mean... Uh, I'd prefer to not do it on camera, to walk through like some particular teachings and say, okay, here's, here's, here's what I would say this, this fits. But I definitely think that there's some things that's very popular today that would at least fit in category two uh, that I think we need to be, just be cautious about. So this is why the more time you spend in the Word, um, the better it is because you're gonna, you learn the shepherd's voice. And as you do, you're able to pick up on like, that doesn't sound right. That sounds weird. So for instance, there's a... Um, I'm going to say some names. It's okay. So there's a, there's a sister who's been a believer for about four months. And she's, she's been going to church, but um, she, she's a brand new believer. And she has recently been listening to some sermons by various different people on the Internet. And so she was asking my wife, hey, what do you think about this person and that person? And so, um, so for instance, threw out T.D. Jakes. And um, she said, you know, he's really energetic, but... It doesn't sound like he's saying things that are right. And she said, but there's this John Piper guy. He sounds really like he's on. And then she she kept going back and forth between different people. And it was really interesting to watch how the Spirit of God was giving her discernment about things, to be able to sift through teaching that's helpful and teaching that's unhelpful. So the more we grow in that, the the better. Okay. So if you have a question about T.D. Jakes, yeah, heavy on prosperity, gospel theology, um, and, yeah, I would say I'm happy to talk to you more about that and show you some, some particular teaching uh, from him that would be, I would think, dangerous and unhelpful. So, question. How should Christians evaluate um, the kind of social justice move? I see it kind of going in certain circles of writing certain past transgressions, but how can we do that without 
mission driven, you know, and how, what's it, to what degree should we be socially active? Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult question. Good question about engagement and social justice. So I think the first thing I just want to say generally for Christians is to stop talking about it on Twitter. Um, I'm serious. Like, so I, I'm, I'm speaking at a, a conference in a couple months on, on, that's going to talk about that topic. So I've been trying to engage in the conversation and just watching things online. It is, this, there's, there's some subjects like this one that are so delicate that you can't, it, you can't do it over social media. So I think the most important thing to even begin on this conversation is to have face-to-face conversations about it, right? Um, I also think that in the, in, in the body of Christ, we need to be able to have room for believers to disagree about ways forward, okay? So, um, but what that doesn't mean is that we can have apathy toward one another, so we must have empathy for one another and listen to one another and, and hear one another's stories and backgrounds and perspectives, which I think is going to shape our own, right? Um, but I will also say that if you have a gospel that does not impact the way you live in regards to producing compassion for people who are suffering or oppressed, then I think you're in very dangerous ground. Mere intellectualism, void of a transformed life and love for others, particularly for those who are suffering, um, the Bible has a lot of very serious warnings about that. So in order to, which I don't think we're going to have time for right now, I would, it would be much more helpful if we're like, give me a policy or give me a topic and let's talk about how Christians can think about that versus like, what do we think about social justice as a whole? But those would be some of my pre- preliminary comments on it. I'm happy to talk with you more about it. It's a good, good question. And, yep. Uh, how do you reconcile the language that Paul uses here about building on someone else's foundation and that being a positive thing and mm-hmm. people are building well versus in Romans 15 where he says, lest I build on someone else's foundation? Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, so uh, the question was, how do we think about Paul talking about building, building on a foundation positively here in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Versus in chapter 15 of Romans, where he's talking about not wanting to build on somebody else's foundation. So the difference is that Paul, as an apostle, felt very called to, by the Lord to be planting new works. So in that sense, he didn't want to go somewhere where somebody else had already planted a church and pour into them. Rather, what he wanted to do was to go somewhere else where there hadn't been one yet, establish a new one, and then allow, allow building to happen upon it. Right? So it's not that he's opposed to building on the foundation, but for what he had been called to do, it was two very different things. Does that make sense? So he would hope that somebody else would come and build on that foundation afterwards, so, as long as they're building faithfully. It, let's pause. Okay, here we go. Back to the book text. <laughs> Chapter 4. Trustworthy workers. We'll do more questions. I know you guys are great. All right, here we go. So what Paul is going to do here in Chapter 4, he's, he's going to be reproving the church by using really strong speech, and some sarcasm. So any of you who love sarcasm, here's your biblical justification for a moment, um, to, show, to show the foolishness of exalting people, okay? Um, yeah, chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So, ministers here are described in two ways. They both start with an S. Anybody catch them? Stewards and servants. They're stewards and they're servants. So first, they're, they're servants. They care for the good of others. They lay down their rights. They lay down their lives. They lay down their comfort so that others can be blessed. That's how a pastor should think of himself and should be thought of. And then secondly, they are stewards, right? Dedicated to the oversight and the protection of another person's property or possessions. And a, 
A steward has one job. And what is it there in 4 2? What's it say? Chapter 4, verse 2. Be faithful. Handle well what you've been given. So Paul acknowledges that there will be a judgment. Now, he's not going all Tupac here, only God can judge me. Like, that's not what he's, that's not what he's saying, okay? That's, that's not true. They're, they're judging one another, and it's, very, it's an important thing to do. What he is saying, though, is that neither the Corinthians nor the court of public opinion nor even his own opinion ultimately matter because it's God in the end who has the ultimate judgment. Because God and God alone will be able to give the appropriate, authoritative, accurate evaluation. Which, by the way, this is very, very important for all of us. That you live for that. It doesn't mean you're dismissive of other people's opinions. It's humble to be in community with people who speak into your life. You've got to have that or you're going to turn sideways. But ultimately, you've got to, you've got to say, who am I here to please? So like my comments on the LBGDQ thing just a second ago, it's so uncomfortable for me because one of my idols is people-pleasing and I love people to like me. And I know that's not totally popular. But y'all got to understand, I'm, I'm a dead man. Like I died when I was 21 years old when Christ rescued me. And I'm now to be a steward and a servant. And I've got to rep Jesus in ways that are rightly. And this is the same for all of us, that we might live for that day, that we'd be faithful on the last day. Well, verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us to not go beyond what is written. Not that, uh, I'm sorry, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So what Paul's trying to do here is he's attempting to lower their estimation of his importance right, and the other teachers that they're exalting to cultivate a high view of the Scriptures and a humble attitude toward one another. Any good, he says, that they have is from God. And what it should do is produce thankful humility, which we talked about at the beginning. Now in 4.7 he says, What do you have that you did not receive? What a wonderful reminder that every single thing that we have it's from God. I hope, you didn't, I hope you saw that when we went through there. This is, this is such a sweet reminder that we have no reason to boast. So if you're gifted, praise God, but you're gifted because of God. Exactly right. If you have some kind of opportunities or experiences or if you're wicked smart, that's great, but who made you that way? And you're like, I studied. Well, who gave you the ability to study? God did. God made you smart. God made you whatever you've got. So let that be received with thankfulness, right? And also note here, to not go beyond what is written. This is, this is, this is, this is good. It's wise here. There are some implications in Scripture that we need to, I think, adhere to, and, but do that humbly and wisely. But, but we need to be people of the book. This is where true wisdom comes from. It comes from, from God. Now here's your sarcasm. You've been waiting for it. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might reign and rule with you. For, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are held in, in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and uh, buffeted and, and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So, you see, the Corinthians had bought into some sort of the prosperity gospel where they had this over-realized sense of how far they'd progressed. That they were, they were viewing themselves as having already arrived. We're super smart. We're reigning. We're all the, they had this, this big puffed-up posture. Which, which in, the, in the final stage of the kingdom of God, it is true that we will reign with Christ. There will be a day when we will see no longer in a mirror dimly. Where we will forever be strengthened in His presence. But they're acting like they've already got that. 
There's not humility in them before God. So what Paul is doing is he's sarcastically showing the foolishness of their posture. That in their minds they're amazing, but Paul shows that exaltation in God's service is often accompanied by rejection from the world, not the applause and the acceptance of it. Um, that, I don't know what I said. I'm sure it was a spirit. Um, exaltation in God's service is often accompanied not by applause and affirmation of the world, but by suffering, right? You know you're walking with, you know, whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul has some hard words here, and he's going to have some more. But what he's doing is he reassures them of his love for them. He's like, listen, I had planted the church. I had led you to Christ. I'm your father in the faith, right? He sent Timothy to come back and to care for them, to check in. But there in 4.18, as we notice, Paul knows that there's a faction in the group of proud people who are trying to stir up division in the church. And what Paul does is he's challenging them. He says when he comes, he's going to use true, he's going to use true power to expose them. Which you're like, what does that mean? Is he going to come in and he's going to zap them? Like, what's true power, right? Well, from what we've been learning so far, what do you think the true power is? What does he mean? Yes. See, what he's not afraid of is coming in there and all these super apostles and these amazing philosophers who have true wisdom from God in their view. That's all sarcasm. He's not afraid of sitting up here in front of the church and saying, let's talk about some stuff. Let's talk about it. He's not afraid because he knows that the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ crucified and the truth of Christ resurrected, that there's real power in that. And no matter what kind of crazy stuff they might say that sounds really good, that this, the true gospel, is what's going to change lives. He's not afraid to go toe-to-toe with them. And not because of how eloquent he is or amazing he is, but because he believes in the power of the gospel. Now, as we wrap up this section, one of the, the primary sin that kind of is undergirding all of this mess is, is what sin would you say? Pride. It's pride. There is a prideful worldly mindedness that has lowered their estimation of Jesus and the foolishness of the cross and has elevated their estimation of worldly wisdom and trendy ideas and gifted teachers. And I think the warning for us is to know that if this can happen to the church in Corinth, it can happen to us as well. And this is why we must be on guard, remaining both humble before the Lord and thankful before the Lord in His Word in the context of truth-telling community that pursues the glory of Christ. It's a guard for us and for our, our souls. So I'm going to pause there. I'll take a few questions, and then we're going to come back for a, a shorter session into uh, and talk about sex and church discipline. So that'll keep you around. Uh, yeah. It's a great, great question. So how are Christians to engage with worldly wisdom? So we have to remember that all people are made in the image of God. Believers and non-believers, all are equally made in the image of God. So there are brilliant, 
billions of brilliant people, right, who don't know the Lord, and they contribute much to society. So there's some really insightful TED Talks, and there's some great YouTube videos to watch. There's lots of books that are written that, that can help you to think about life. Paul's not saying that you just need to just only read the Bible, only read Christian books, never listen to a non-believer. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying, though, is that you must see it all through the right lens. That, that there's nothing that the world can ultimately tell you that is going to add ultimate meaning to your life. It may help you to be able to organize things better. It may help you to be able to accomplish your job better. It may teach you some skills. But your identity and your value and your hope and your peace and your joy and your liberty, that can only ever be found in Christ rooted in the foolishness of the gospel. So see all the other things that are out there through the lens of, of the gospel. Receive what is good and dismiss what is, is unhelpful or distracting or undermining of the gospel. Does that make sense? It's a good question. Somebody who hadn't asked a question yet. Yep. You should, you should listen to some other, some other people. But thank you. That's that's kind. But uh, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm, it's a good question. So the question is, how should people who want to go into the ministry think about this, or how should we as as church members think about listening to messages? Right. So God has gifted. So eloquence in of itself is not evil. Um, sometimes God gives faithful brothers and sisters really amazing gifts that accompany their ability to tell the truth in a way that's compelling and interesting, right? Praise God for that. That's really good. So we should praise God for that. Um, I, think, I think first and foremost, in an age where, I hope you've noticed, this Corinthian life is, is the same one we're, we're messing with right now. I mean, there's a celebrity culture that, you know, I'm of this person, I'm of that person. You've got to be really careful, right? So I think... If you find yourself being enamored with a teacher, pray that God would help you to have a right perspective. That, that God would help you to see this person is merely somebody that's created of dust that God has, has gifted. Okay? And I think you want to make sure that you're attending a church and are committed to a church where the truth is, the, is, is clear. So I would much rather go to a church where the pastor's, eh, you know, he's fine, whatever that means. But that brother is so faithful that I never have to lean over and tell my kids, well, not exactly, you know, <laughs> that I never have to, on the ride home, be like, mostly true. Um, or that song, it was not really about Jesus. You know, I mean, like, you don't want to have to do that all the time, right? So the most important thing is, are they speaking truth? And praise God for that. And make sure that that's what we're, we're leaving with. Not with, oh man, you know, he or she is such an amazing teacher. Say, you know what, praise God that that person's gifted. Here's what I took away from God's word tonight. And making sure that that's what's exalted and that's what's talked about. Does that make sense? I, I, and I think for, for brothers who, you know, desire to, to, to be pastors, I would just I would encourage you to not listen to tons of podcasts. Like, it doesn't matter how awesome Matt Chandler can preach or David Platt or Thabiti or whomever it is you listen to, right? You know, I mean, it's, you just want to know, know the word and know the God of the word and know God's people and do your best to give God's people God's word so you can all love them together. And if that's just your goal, don't worry if anybody ever knows who you are. Don't worry if anybody ever thinks you're great. You just want Jesus to be great. And pray for that end, you know? So, it's a good question. Nick, you've been trying for a while. I'll go ahead and let you get it. Um, so, we've been talking about pride, um, but in terms of in chapter 3, he talks about like spiritual milk versus solid food, so like receiving, and then also like building, there's like these like levels, right? Like what you build with. And like, how do we think about that? Like, if that's the reality, 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm like a I'm like a type one builder, or like oh yeah, I like I'm a I, yeah. I I'm ready for the boot, you know, like I'm ready sure. for the stakes instead yeah. of the belt. Like, well, I I think Exhibit A that you might not be a number one builder <laughs> and ready for stake is when you start saying. I'm ready for this. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, th- I think that attitude of, I-, I, think, I think anybody who approaches the gospel and, and theology without trepidation shows they don't understand what, what, they're, what they're dealing with, right? So if, we should just, we should always pray that we never get over Jesus loves me, this I know. Like that we just never get over that. That that's the sweet, that the best thing in the world is not that I can, you know, quote to you all of Calvin's institutes, but that I'm a child of the Father, that's amazing. Like, God loves me for some unfathomable reason. Like, if that's always the sweetest thing, that'll help you to be able to handle deeper things. Because what you do, if you're reading it rightly, if you're studying doctrine rightly, the deeper you go, the more God is going to be exalted, and the more you realize how off you are. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, so any maturity that I've had it's just made me more aware that I don't know squat, <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm so, I mean, I remember when I, I remember like I'd been a believer like four months and I remember there was a point when I hadn't, like I hadn't sinned in a few hours and I remember <laughs> the, the thought came to me. I was like, I think I got it. And then all of a sudden it was just like, I mean, God didn't send me an email, but it was like, I felt like that's prideful. And I was like, oh, also, it matters how you think, too. You know, and it's like it just the layers start coming off. And I think the closer you get to God, the more you realize how much bigger he is than you ever imagined. So that's probably the, the sign that you're ready for more is that it's producing that sort of thinking rather than a, who can I crush today with some knowledge? You know, like that's not as hell. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were just mic dropping everywhere. And everybody's like, oh, and like Jesus, Paul's like, what are you? Idiots, stop it. Like, Jesus is awesome, not you. So, yeah. We're going to pray, and then we're going to come back for last session. Father, we thank you for this evening that you've given us to set apart time to hear your word and receive your word. We pray that we would receive it and believe it. God, would you guard us from pride? Oh, it's so easy to creep in. Um, And God, would you help us to see you as you really are? That's a wonderful Father. And Jesus as a wonderful, merciful Savior. And the Spirit as the ever-abiding helper. And God, might we marvel that the God of the universe would love us for some reason in Christ. Thank you so much. God, would you help us to receive your word and to believe it. In the name of Jesus, amen.